Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the interesting stories we continue to cover on the podcast is that of investigative genetic genealogy. It's been a huge tool for police in cracking old cold cases. And everything changed in April 2018 when California authorities announced that they used the groundbreaking technique to identify a man they said was the Golden State Killer. He was a serial rapist and murderer who terrorized the state in the 70s and the 80s. So now law enforcement agencies across the country are trying their hand at it to to help solve cold cases. And for the most part, they've been solving some crimes and families have been getting closure. This story is a little bit different. There was a woman in Georgia who was crying foul, saying that police detectives lied to her in order to obtain her DNA. Police used that DNA and this new investigative genetic genealogy technique to match her son to a cold case murder. Asking innocent people to voluntarily provide their DNA is known as target testing. And when this case goes to trial in June, it could be the first case to explore how police conduct investigations using genetic genealogy. As I said, the woman felt betrayed because police lied to her to get her DNA. For more on this story, we spoke to John Shupi. He's a reporter for NBC News Digital. Well, what's interesting about this is there's been so much, as you mentioned, attention on genetic genealogy and the very large impact it has and a lot of amazing results that this technique that's only only really two years old has had. Hundreds of cases have been solved, old rapes and murders, like you said, but there hasn't been a lot of scrutiny about how these investigations are performed. Only three of the cases have gone to trial, some of them not even really getting too into how it's used. And what I thought to do in this story was to shine a little light upon one aspect of how they collect this DNA. Genetic genealogy is a method of last resort when all of our investigative techniques have basically failed. And target testing this process of collecting DNA from innocent people who are somewhere on the family tree of an unknown suspect, that is a tactic of last resort within this method of last resort. And the story seeks to raise some questions about, at one point, is it not okay to take people's DNA voluntarily, especially if you're doing it under, like you said, false pretenses. So what happened in the case of Eleanor Holmes when detectives showed up to her house and asked her for some DNA? Eleanor Holmes and her husband, Benjamin Holmes Sr., said they showed up unannounced. Two detectives showed up unannounced in October of 2018 and said that they, they were friendly and, and businesslike and professional and said introduced themselves as being from Orlando. And they said that they were looking for help identifying somebody who had died many years earlier and they hadn't been able to identify that person. And they said they had reason to believe because they'd been doing some research on DNA and building a family tree using genetic genealogy that the deceased person was somehow related to Ms. Holmes or Mr. Holmes. And they asked for the DNA. And thinking that and wondering about any distant relatives who she had in Orlando and had lost touch with, Eleanor Holmes said yes and gave the DNA, thinking that's what it was going to be used for. A few days later, like you said in the intro, um, she found out that that was not the case. 
And why were they suspected? I mean, why did they go up to Eleanor Holmes? Obviously, they had already tried this method. They were already had some leads. And I guess this goes into the question, you know, why would they go through this tactic of trying to obtain her DNA? If they already had a suspect that could have possibly been their son, why didn't they trail him? Why didn't they get a discarded Coke can or something and obtain the DNA that way? Why did they go through the family? That's a really good question. Um, Target testing is a pretty standard tactic within genetic genealogy to fill in gaps when you need one to find this unknown suspect who left DNA at the crime scene. And the real question is, how far do you go? How aggressive are you in using it? And I think this, this example of using, asking Eleanor Holmes for her DNA is an example of using it up until the very end of an investigation. So in retrospect, we now know from court filings that before they approached Eleanor Holmes, they suspected that it was someone very closely related, probably a child of Eleanor Holmes. But for some reason, and police have not explained this to me, they felt they needed to get her DNA to be sure. And so that last, she was the last piece in a lot of voluntary DNA collections that occurred in this case, more than a dozen, closer to 15. And Eleanor Holmes provided that last piece of genetic breadcrumb, if you will, that said, okay, we know now, now that we have her DNA, that it's either, it's one of her two sons. They had even obtained DNA samples from Eleanor's sister and aunt. So they were hot on the trail there. Interestingly enough, the way they found their way to Eleanor Holmes was through a distant cousin. His name was John Hogan. He is the original one who submitted his DNA to Ancestry and GEDmatch to learn more about his own family tree. He says, when you told me that my DNA helped solve a 17-year-old murder case, I couldn't believe it. He says, we have a huge, huge family. I've got something like 654th cousins and a bunch of second and third cousins. He might be exaggerating there. After uploading his DNA... Police were able to identify Hogan's great-grandparents, Charlie and Mary Bergman. And that's what led detectives to Eleanor Holmes, which led them to her son thereafter. So he says he's very happy, actually, that his DNA helped solve this murder case. It seems like he might be a distant family member, so maybe not as close to the Holmeses. And just to be clear, police are allowed to mislead people to obtain certain evidence. Obtaining DNA is a little bit different. I think they have to uh, have uh, informed consent at least to have that. But as we keep talking about, this kind of blurs the line if we're fudging some of the facts to be able to get the DNA. So after they had the DNA and they said, okay, it is one of her sons possibly, they focused on the two sons that they had. I think Reginald was one of them and then Benjamin Holmes Jr. And then kind of how I described at the beginning, they tailed him. They obtained something from him. I think he discarded a cigar and a beer. And then that's when they matched that DNA finally. Correct. That's how all these cases end ultimately, is collecting an actual single-source DNA sample from the person they're targeting and matching it to that original crime scene DNA, and even going a step further like they did in Benjamin Holmes Jr.'s case, which is to actually get then another sort of more pure sample through court order to make sure that it is a match. Um, I I want to say something about what you just said before, too. It is legal, and courts have ruled repeatedly for police to obtain evidence through deception, and DNA is no exception to that. But I think what this case shows is technology and the power of DNA to tell about what our genetic makeup is has become so so much more powerful that I think cases like this are causing legal minds and ethical minds to want to rethink how far police can go. 
And this leads us really for a slight look into the future. You know, we're talking about this case and how it kind of resolved to this end. But Benjamin Holmes Jr. maintains his innocence. He's pleaded not guilty in this. There's a trial scheduled for June, and this could be the first time to explore how police conduct these types of investigations if the defense wants to throw that out there, maybe try to exclude some of this DNA evidence. Yeah, the lawyer, Jerry Gurley, who represents Benjamin Holmes Jr., um, told me that he is exploring ways to try to get the DNA evidence thrown out. That would not be unusual for a good defense attorney to do. But he also acknowledged to me that the deception aspect of collecting the DNA probably isn't something that he can do because there really is no law and there's plenty of case law saying that it is proper. So he's looking for other avenues, and that's why I brought up that there are legal minds and, for instance, as I mentioned in the article, the ACLU wanting to bring new challenges to that the ability of police to obtain DNA in covert ways. John Shuby, reporter at NBC News Digital. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Finally, to end this week, a lighter story. It's really hard to beat that multi-sensory experience of eating something nice and crispy and crunchy. The sight, the taste, the feel, and especially the sound. We're going to talk about the entire industry dedicated to making foods crispy and crunchy. Think of crispy chips and crunchy chicken sandwiches. We'll talk about how companies perfect these recipes for mass production, and beyond that, how they market the crispiness through the sound and the looks and advertising. For more on this story, we spoke to Alex Beggs. She's a writer at Bon Appetit. We started thinking about it around Thanksgiving, which is sort of our Super Bowl at Bon Appetit, and we noticed in our Thanksgiving issue that we were just describing everything as crispy, and crispy was just this ideal turkey skin texture. We had these crispy, crunchy topping on our mashed potatoes. You need to get your Brussels sprouts crispy edge. And so we wanted to get to the bottom of when and why and how crispy became this beloved food texture. Yeah, I think you mentioned it in your article that used it around 500 times last year to describe everything. Uh, (laughs) Okay, that was an exaggeration. (laughs) No, I believe it. but, didn't have time to count. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, there's so much that goes into food and what makes food so lovely. Obviously, flavor, the taste, the colors of it, but the texture of it is so important. There's so many times you hear people say, oh, I hate that food because it's too gooey or squishy or whatever. But you rarely hear people say, I hate that food because it's too crunchy. So let's talk about that. You spent some time with Frito-Lay. A lot of the article talks about chips and how you mass produce this crispy flavors. Let's take one quick step back because you did differentiate the difference between crispiness and crunchiness. What is that about? (laughs) Yeah, this is something we used to argue a lot about, like over beers. But it was funny to me that scientists have actually studied this. And there was a paper that explicitly states the difference between crispy and crunchy. So now I feel like I can win any bar argument (laughs) from now to the end of time. But basically what it comes down to is crispy It's sort of what the word sounds like. It's a higher pitched noise when you bite into it. It's usually something that you bite with your front teeth. So something a little more delicate. I would think of like a Lay's classic chip as being quintessentially crispy, whereas crunchy, like the word is this uh, lower pitched noise. It's denser. It's in the back of your molars. So when you bite down into something crunchy, it has fewer ruptures and breaks than something crispy that might break into a million pieces. You talked about these studies that were performed. Interestingly enough, it's all about the women. They noticed 
the crisp and crunch more, whereas men tended to notice a food color and flavor more. Yes, and when I was at Frito-Lay, I felt very vindicated because I'm a huge kettle chip aficionado. And when a head of R&D at Frito-Lay said that they find that women really prefer kettle chips to the classic flat chips, I was like, I knew it. I could have told you this, but (laughs) they had the official answer. Yeah, I mean, I love the kettle ones too. The jalapeno kettle chips are are really great. So Mm -hmm. um, those are just tasty. And and going back to that crunchiness, (laughs) that's what you love. Okay, so tell us what Frito-Lay specifically, you know, you mentioned you spent some time with them. What do they do specifically to create this crunchiness and then beyond that with packaging to sustain the crunchiness? Well, each product has its own sort of formula. And well, other than the baked chips, frying is a huge component. They all kind of go through a step of dehydration. They each are created in very specific ways. So Cheetos are extruded, which means they get kind of pushed out of a machine. Things like Tostitos are rolled and cut out almost like cookie dough, but then fried too. So it's a combination of those cooking methods and the ingredients, just the right combination of flours and leaveners like cornstarch and baking powder are crucial. But I think people don't realize just how calculated that is, especially for the newer chips with, say, chickpea flour and rice flour. They're really trying to replicate uh, potato chips with these alternative flours, and it's really challenging. But Frito-Lay is, of course, like master engineers at this. So they tinker with hundreds of types of flours till they find the perfect crispy combination. And then these gigantic missile launcher machines actually are the ones that make them, you know, people aren't cooking them in a kitchen somewhere. Well, I mean, it's got to be an exact science and to be able to mass produce them, it takes a lot of effort to get that right. And so as you've been saying, yeah, it all goes down to what the ingredients are, the method of doing it, and then replicating it on a mass produced level. Also in your article talking about the industries dedicated to making foods crispy, you talked about Popeye's and Popeye's fried chicken sandwich, which we all know won the chicken sandwich wars, right? Tell us about how they got it done. And even beyond that, you talked to the agency that was handling the creative stuff for how to market it and commercials for the crispy sandwich. Tell us how that went. The Popeye's sandwich is so good. Have you had it? I have had it. It is very good. So a lot of people at the time were like, oh, it's sold out. Just buy regular Popeye's chicken and get a bun and make it yourself. But that's not (laughs) the case. They really formulated an original product here. And it's all in the batter that the chicken fries in. And in this case, they kind of what we were talking about with Frito-Lay, they came up with a very specific combination of two types of wheat. And one is like a kind of a all-purpose flour, like a more high-protein wheat, and then another one's a little bit more delicate. I'd compare it to a cake flour. And those two flours combined to make this extra crispy coating, as well as how long they fry it for, and the leaveners, so probably some cornstarch or something like that. And that's so important. Yeah. You know, Popeye's worked with flour mills to source the flour that had that exact percentage that they need of proteins and all that to make that crispy bite. You were talking about, in general, how good the sandwich was. Part of the reason why they ran out so quickly in the beginning was they were working with a specific chicken provider and they only ordered a certain amount. So when they ended there, they had to go back and find another chicken provider that would give them that right taste, that right chicken breast. So that's how much goes into making these things. But I digress back to the crispiness and kind of the commercialization of it because it's got to look just as good as it's going to taste, especially when you're doing this for commercials and sound and all that. 
Yeah, I loved talking to the creative team because they love the Popeye so much and they're kind of like, they turn it into this whole beauty pageant. And my favorite thing about Popeye's is they call the kind of little gnarly crummy bits of fried skin that come off. They call those crispy poppies. (laughs) Uh, And so in the photo, you want to make sure you see lots of crispy poppies. So just like this extremely textured surface of the chicken. And they play with light and shadows to make sure you really see all of those crispy poppies popping out. And then you have the bun, which should look sturdy, but the chicken kind of squishes down on it just a little bit. And then kind of a creamy sauce that comes in, but it can't overpower because that would make it look soggy. The pickle is just thick enough. And of course, they like measure the chicken. It has to be a very specific measurement of thickness. All of those details in what you see in the ad are deliberate. And food stylists have paintbrushes with oil that they're glistening onto the chicken. They're tweezing little crispy poppies into spots that maybe got a bear. So You're making me hungry, but at the same time, just describing the crispiness, I can imagine myself You know, when I was eating that chicken sandwich, I mean, there's so much that goes into all of this. And, you know, obviously we're recording a podcast right now. Talk about the sound because you got to spend time in the sound lounge. Where was the sound lounge out? I lost it in here. Was it for Frito-Lays? So the sound lounge is a sound effects studio in New York, and they actually do sound effects from movies, TV shows, and I was talking to them specifically about food ads they do. So they're an independent sound effect company. So when I went out, that was one of my favorite days of reporting because I didn't know anything about this world. It's so Hollywood and I'm mostly in a kitchen. So in the sound lounge, they have these booths where they record the sounds for ads. And in the story, I talk about a tater tot ad they were doing. So they record all of the food noises that are going to be amplified in the ad. And they just sit in front of a big microphone, bite into a tater tot maybe a few times, and then they edit and amplify and bring out and clean up that sound. So it's this perfect crisp because people do not like to hear mouth noises. Any chewing, any sense of saliva is disgusting to consumers, right, right. Uh, which Frito-Lay told me. And maybe it's sort of obvious to the rest of us, like, oh, yeah, that's gross. I hate when the person in the cubicle next to me is, is chomping down. But yeah, so that's what the sound lunch does. And, then, and they did this tater tot ad and they sent the sound to the food company and the company might say it doesn't sound crispy enough. And in the tater tot case, they had to double fry the tater tots to make them extra crispy sounding for that perfect bite. And you hear it in the ad and it's just like so surreal and shattering, almost like glass. I love that. I mean, this is just kind of a look from top to bottom, how they manufacture crispy foods, make it look good and then make it sound good, especially when it comes to the advertising so that people want to go get it. And humans, you know, we love this stuff. It's a multi-sensory experience from the sight, the taste, the feel, the sound. When you crunch on things, it goes in through your bones and up to your head. You know, everybody loves that stuff. So it's just a fun look on this. You must have had a blast reporting on the story. Well, I went through a lot of potato chips for research, let me tell you. Alex Beggs, staff writer at Bon Appetit. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Bye. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Thank you.